Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, so can we go with it? Right. Um, I'm not going to recap too much on last time. If you, if you want to see it, it's there online. There was a lot of teaching. Um, you've got the visuals and you've got, you've got the verbals with it. So um, tonight we need to move on a little further. Of course, just the basic, basic premise was that uh, um, Paul told Timothy... He needed to rightly divide the word of truth. And we said that's not about just uh, the correct interpretation of a verse of scripture. That was actually suggesting that something needed a line putting through it. Uh, the line needed putting through what, what Martin Luther called these two aspects, the law and the gospel and works and faith. He said when we mix those, we create more mischief than a man's mind can comprehend. So I propose to you that because the church has failed to distinguish fully between these, it has not made a clean separation. So we have had a mixture. The consequence of that mixture is that you have to be mischievous in, in how you then present the gospel. Hence, how we talked about these three invented words, gospel, church, and hell, uh, which we're not going to cover. Um, we also talked about the fact that this side is driven, law and works is driven by by everything that flows from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which of course the consequence is death. And uh, on this side, everything flows from the tree of life, which of course the consequence is life. Uh, We also said two important things about this, was that the gospel on this side of the line really starts at Genesis 3, because everybody talks about original sin. But actually, Genesis doesn't belong in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. It begins in Genesis chapter 1. So we propose that when you understand the tree of life and separate these things, you live in a place of original blessing, not from a place of original sin. So everything we understand comes through a lens that's driven here. Now, one is all about right and wrong. The other one is about a revelation of righteousness. So then we talked about the fact that there were three datum points on this dividing line. And those three datum points are creation, incarnation, and resurrection. Now, don't confuse incarnation with nativity, okay? Um, Jesus' nativity is part of incarnation, but it's not the whole story. Incarnation is really based in John chapter 1, which is the New Testament's reference to creation, okay? Genesis chapter 1 begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Nothing was made without Him. Um, and, uh, And it says, and the Word was made flesh and lived among us and we saw the glory of the Father. So incarnation, carna, carnation is not the juice carnation that you put on your apple pie, okay? Incarnation, incarnate means for something to be in flesh, so God in the flesh, incarnate. So, so this is very important in the context of understanding the true gospel because Genesis chapter one does not say in the beginning was the word and the word was made print 
and the word was published and we bought it at the bookstore, it says the word was made flesh and lived among us and from the word made flesh we saw the glory of the Father. Okay, so this is important, of course, um, resurrection, life from the dead. So we also talked about the fact that the, the early church, and we're talking about the very early church, their gospel was not based on the crucifixion, it was based on the resurrection. Because there were more than 20 messiahs that, that you can find out in history around at that time, and several of them uh, died, several of them were crucified. So to say, you know, we have a messiah and he was crucified was not news. To say we have a Messiah and he's risen from the dead, now that was different. So, so the whole message of that early church was about the resurrection of Jesus' life from the dead. Now, what we said about this was all these three actually interrelate. So creation is an incarnation because God said let there be and there was. So creation is an incarnation. Creation is also a resurrection because it says it was darkness and void and empty and out of the darkness and the void something was birthed, something came alive, so it's a resurrection. Incarnation likewise also incorporates creation because you can't have the word made flesh without a wonderful act of creation and creation is all about beginnings, in the beginning. So our, our word from the off is not about endings, it's about beginnings. It's about incarnation. Of course, incarnation is a resurrection. If you look at that in the context of the nativity, what's the difference between a baby coming out of the womb and a saviour coming out of the tomb? Very little. Both came from a seed of life, both were in darkness, and there had to be a way out into the world that brought new life. So likewise, resurrection, incarnation, creation, they all inter intermingle. Now, what we did say was that the crucifixion was not part of these three major datum points, which is a shock uh, to most of you. And I guess uh, I've walked enough of a journey that it wasn't as much of a shock to me. But we're going to talk a lot about this tonight, where that fits and why it's not one of those three datum points. Now, um, all these datum points on our dividing line, because we're wanting to live over here on this side, okay? All our datum points contain the same elements. Here's some of the elements. All of them, um, all of them have an implanted or received seed. All of them have darkness to light. All of them have something from nothing. All of them have death to life. They all have a bursting forth. They all have a recurring model, which means that they happen over and over again. There was not one creation. Creation was just introducing the power of creation into life. So the beginnings of creation have never stopped. Incarnation was not a one time with Jesus when we uh, understand the nativity. Okay? The word has been being made flesh from the beginning of time and is still being made flesh in you and me and that's how the glory is seen. And, and the same with resurrection. So it's a recurring model. In all of these three, there is an inherent goodness. There is, in all of these three, word made flesh. In all of these three, there is an irresistible force. In all of them, there is the power of partnership. Okay? And in all of them, we see the Father's glory. So that's just some indicators of the elements that belong to these things. Now, Albert Einstein, the great um, scientist, said this one day, which is great. Two things are infinite. That means that two things don't end, okay? 
the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. How was Einstein? In other words, the, the one thing that he had encountered that he believed was infinite is human stupidity. So I propose to you that the great problem with humanity has never been sin. It's always been stupidity. And that God's problem was never dealing with the sin of humanity. God's problem has always been dealing with the stupidity of humanity. Okay? So, it's not so much what we read in the Bible, but how we read the Bible that determines what we think we see. Okay? And what we think it is trying to accomplish in its narrative. So, the question is then, in what we drew last time, where does the cross fit into all of this? Because we know the cross is important in the context of the Christian gospel, um, but I want to give it some different context from, from, from where we read the Bible from as to how we now interpret even what the cross was about. So I'm going to go through one or two scriptures with you just, um, just to show you how we then start to put some extra issues on this line, okay? So I'm going to start in Galatians 3. <coughs> and um, verse 6, okay, we're going to do a few verses from Galatians 3, but verse 6 says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, okay? This is a very, very, very important verse. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. You'll also find this same verse in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament as well. We're going to read that in a bit. You'll find it in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Romans chapter 4, verse 4, and James chapter 2, verse 21. This same statement Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. I want you to remember that verse, okay? Simple. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. <coughs> Then verse 7 of Galatians 3, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Those who believe what? Those who believe whatever it was that Abraham believed are children of Abraham. Okay? So this is not about some charismatic evangelical statement of the gospel. This is connected to the verse before. So understand then that those who believe, who believe whatever it was that Abraham believed, are the children of Abraham. So, it's as important that we are the children of Abraham as it is that we are the children of God. Okay, so can you see there's a significance emerging here? Because the Siddiqui could have said, understand then that those who believe are children of God. But he doesn't, does he? Because his point is, Abraham... Okay, why? We're going to find that out. Verse 8. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's all non-Jews, by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Okay, so the question then is, when did the gospel begin to be preached? Because we think the gospel began to be preached from here, just after here, right? The Acts of the Apostles is when the gospel we have been taught began to be preached. 
But the Bible differs from our view of the gospel. The gospel did not begin to be preached here. We already have an account that says how, how and God announced the gospel in advance, the same good news in advance to Abraham, when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. Now, what is an all nations will be blessed through you? That's an act of creation. It's an act of incarnation. It's going to be an act of resurrection. So all our three major points are contained in the gospel. Is that me? In the gospel of Abraham. Okay, so, uh, verse 9. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So we have a connection with our faith. Our faith in what? Our faith in whatever it was that Abraham had faith in. Our believing whatever it was that Abraham believed. It says that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So can you see how one of the most critical characters in the whole of the Bible for our understanding is this guy, Abraham? Okay? We have to put his name up there because this is Abraham heavy, okay? So let's just take a side issue. So, so we heard that the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham. So we asked the question, when did the gospel begin to be preached? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 and 6 says this. It says, those who formerly had the gospel preached unto them, meaning the children of Israel who came out of Egypt... So the gospel then was being preached. Let's do this in a different color. The gospel then, let's put gospel, was not something that began here with, here with Acts. The gospel has already been being preached all this way. Now, to put weight to that, we also said about this wonderful verse in Revelation that says that Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. So how can the gospel begin at the cross if Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth? Now, of course, we proffered an explanation for that um, last time, that, that when you think of, of the laws of physics and understand that light travels at 186,000 miles per second, and when we see a star in the sky, we are not seeing the star as it is, we are seeing the star as it was. So if that star is 100 light years away, that means that light traveling at 186,000 miles a second takes 100 years before our eyes actually see it. So we are seeing stars in the sky now as they were thousands of years ago, which is mind-blowing, isn't it? So that means what we see here happened here. Even in physics, that can be proved. What we see now with the eye happened before we ever saw it with our eyes. So it was possible for the lamb to have done everything that was necessary in a mysterious way before we ever reached the cross. So we're already dealing with the fact that the gospel doesn't begin here after the cross and resurrection, beginning with the church. It's already been flowing from the beginning of time. How many of you know it was good news when God said to Adam that, that he blessed them and said, be fruitful, 
Increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. What does gospel mean? Good news. That was the good news of the kingdom. It was a, it was a blessing imparted to humanity that we had done nothing to earn and didn't particularly deserve, but we were the beneficiaries of a blessing spoken, not a blessing earned. Now my question is, why do we get down here and the gospel we preach is all about you being the beneficiary of a blessing earned rather than a blessing given? That distorted gospel that comes on this side with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and right and wrong that says you will be rewarded for doing good and you will be punished for doing bad. It makes hell a very difficult concept when you come and live over this side and realize that from the beginning, God was blessing humanity, not because of what they had earned, but he was blessing them indiscriminately. They were simply beneficiaries of a revelation of righteousness, okay? So, so we know then that the gospel was formally preached to the children of Israel way before any of this, okay? Um, then it also, <coughs> this, is, this is also another, uh, another one on that, that uh, let me find my, um, okay? Uh, take another character here. Let me get him in the right place. David. Okay, King David, who is a classic biblical figure because the Bible talks about Jesus as being great David's greatest son. He talks about him of the, of the, of the root of Jesse, of the, of, the, of the seed of David, okay? And um, the issue was with David, of course, he's way up here before, before what we would call the incarnation in the terms of Jesus being born and before the cross and the resurrection, but he writes Psalm 23 for us, okay? The Lord is my shepherd. He couldn't write that without a revelation of righteousness. He couldn't write that if he's living over here. Because by terms that we would understand, he had no way of attaining the position of salvation that he would need to say the Lord is my shepherd. Now what's also fascinating is that when John is writing in chapter 10 of his gospel, he starts talking about the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He bases so much of his, of his, his narrative in chapter 10 on Jesus being the good shepherd. We are introduced to something that was not necessarily a concept in the wider scheme of things, but David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay? Or in other words... The Bible doesn't talk about God the Father as being a shepherd. It talks about God the Son, the incarnate one. So David had a revelation of the shepherd of God, which we know is Christ. Now, of course, David also, because of his, his insight on that, wrote several other things. Um, one of the things he, he also wrote, which is in uh, uh, Psalm 110, it's a fascinating statement because at that time, David was top dog, okay? So in the kingdom of, of, of Israel and Judah, he was top dog. There was nobody above him. But in Psalms 110 verse 1, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? Now, it's quite simple for us, if we've had any background in church, to decipher that. But for David, he's back here. So the gospel didn't begin here. 
the gospel's already at work because David says, hang on, he's the top dog. But he says, there is a Lord who is above another Lord who is above me. Or in other words, the Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, Christ the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, because when we then encounter the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we see in chapter 10 that when this man had offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down forever at the right hand of the Father, expecting his enemies to become his footstool. So David's got all this back here. So I propose to you the gospel then is not something that was dependent upon the event called the cross, or what happened after the resurrection in the forming of the body that we now call the church. Give me one, give you one more from David. Um, David also said that, um, and it's in, in Psalms 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven against whom the Lord will never count his iniquity. Now, once you get into the realm of God never counting your wrongdoing against you, you have moved into a realm of grace that lives at the tree of life that begins in Genesis chapter 1 that is about the good news and faith that believes in original blessing and has a revelation of righteousness. Otherwise, you can't say that. David's way, way back here saying, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities will never be counted against him. In other words, as far as the east is from the west, is another thing he said. That's how far your transgression is removed from you. So we have this amazing revelation. The point I'm trying to make to you is that we have to free the gospel from what I would call its evangelical charismatic constraints that say it happens here and you only get it by a particular prayer and you only get it by a particular way of believing and that that belief has to be a specific faith in a specific event happening at a specific time through a specific person, I would beg to differ because they had the revelation before this ever takes place. And the Bible confirms it. Okay? So, let's come back to our Galatians uh, chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous or the just for the unrighteous or the unjust, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. That's resurrection. And verse 19 is the important verse, okay, in uh, Galatians 3. Through him, no, through whom, that's through Christ, through whom also, get this, I don't think that's Galatians 3, that one, Phil, is it? No, it isn't. It's 1 Peter 3. Sorry, I'm misleading you. I'm thinking that's not Galatians. This is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. I'll come back to Galatians in a minute. Because th this, you've got to hear this, okay? 1 Peter 3, 18. Let's start that again. For Christ died for sins once for all. Now, our next session, we're going to talk some more about some complicated words called propitiation, right? Okay, but we won't do that tonight. Um, the just or the righteous for the, for the unrighteous or the unjust to bring you to God he was put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit okay so we're talking about Jesus put to death in the body made alive by the spirit here but now listen to verse 19 you're not going to hear this in any evangelical church ever 
People will read it and skip over it, but they're not going to talk to you about this verse because it says, through whom, through Christ, he also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay? So, these people back here are dead. And they're in the prison of Hades. But now we're told that in Christ's work, he goes, I come out here, and preaches to these spirits who are dead. That's why you're not going to hear that preached about or mentioned in any evangelical church you will ever attend. But it's there in the Bible. I don't have a problem with it. Because the gospel transcends the narrow framework that we have built. It begins before we said it did. It does more than we thought it did. And it goes on in a different direction than we were ever told. So we have this amazing verse that says, hang on, not only is the gospel being preached through time, but somehow this gospel is being preached the other side of the grave. Now, if you want to fight against that, if you're watching online, you want to argue, you've got to explain the verse. Don't throw other, ah, but other verses say, this is the verse we're talking about. I don't have a problem because to me it says, isn't this wonderful? Don't we want to live in this and not in this because hope goes further than we ever dreamed or imagined? Okay, so let's come back to um, what I think is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men... Though it is only a man's covenant, this is Abraham's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Okay, so remember, Abraham is our, is our, is our topic. That is right, and we're back in the right chapter there. Abraham is our topic, okay? The covenant is with Abraham. Um, if it's confirmed, which it was by God, no one annuls or adds to it. That means... Whatever this covenant was, you can bank your shirt on it that the whole revelation of the gospel is here, okay? Because you can't annul it and you can't add to it. Therefore, I propose to you that this, the cross, was not an addition to this. It was part of it. It didn't annul this. Now, remember, we're not talking about the law. We're talking about Abraham, so whatever happened here confirmed whatever happened there, which we'll, again we'll talk about in just a moment. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Okay? He does not say unto seeds, mean as of many, but as of one, to your seed, and that seed is Christ. Okay? So, so to Abraham and his seed... The promises were made. So, so hang on a minute. So the promises of Abraham that start here run all the way through here. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham. So the seed here has begun not here. It's begun here. 
So we go all the way back to Abraham. If we want to understand what happened here, does it therefore not make sense that you have to understand what happened here? And if you understand what happened here, you will get a proper interpretation on this rather than starting with evangelical charismatic doctrine and working back to the cross from what we said it means, we come to say what really does it mean? Because if we can know here what it does mean, we can readjust our thinking which will stop us mixing this and this because most evangelical thinking comes from here and comes down there to Acts of the Apostles and what they believe is the church. It starts in Genesis 3. It's all about original sin. It's all about the failure of humanity. It's all about then ideas that we have to develop, what we've talked to you a little bit about, called atonement theories, okay? Of which our most common one is penal substitutionary atonement. Anything that has to have a name that complex can't be what God intended, okay? So, uh, verse 17, and this I say, I'm going to read this from three different versions. This I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, so what we're going to have in here, we're going to add a couple of things in, we're going to add, we're going to add Moses, okay, and we're going to add in here the law. Remember, Martin Luther had something to say about that. This, this is the Ten Commandments and uh, all the requirements, the, 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 the stuff that was put on us three months after leaving Egypt that I proposed to you was designed to show us how we couldn't possibly manage to live even by our best efforts, even if we had the A, B, C, D, E, the one, two, three, four, five, six steps. We couldn't keep those steps. And uh, Jesus confirmed that, but we haven't time to talk about that um, tonight. So this I say, verse 17, that the law, uh, I mean the New King James Version first, okay, which was 430 years later, after Abraham, 430 years, um, cannot annul the covenant. Now, now the New King James Version uses an amazing statement here. Um, it says it cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before, which is this, okay, Abraham, by God in Christ. That's a fascinating way for the translators to write that in Galatians. That this could not annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. In other words, they were catching the understanding that if this writing in Galatians, which can also back up in Romans and Hebrews, was correct, then they're saying Christ was at work here. Christ was being revealed in this covenant with Abraham. That it should make the promise of no effect. Okay? So, so this is built on a promise. Okay? For if the inheritance is of the law, that means you have to work for it, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So who was it given to? Abraham. How was it given? By promise. Therefore, although we were introduced to the law, that was never going to be something you were supposed to add to this. It was only supposed to show you that if you live here, you'll just be trying to use your own efforts to achieve something that here you could have as a promise to you. 
So let me read that now in the NIV. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God. So there's a covenant here that cannot be set aside because it was established by God. Okay? And thus do away with the promise. So within this covenant, there is a promise. It's a covenant of promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. Now this is how the NIV put it, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So grace didn't start here. Okay? Remember what we said about Genesis chapter 1? That the law came... The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the law and truth were given by Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus. It says that the law was given, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The, the, the top and bottom of that is that it was never about law, truth balancing out grace, which some people will try and tell you, all oh, the truth is there to balance out grace because we shouldn't get carried away with grace. That's a totally wrong interpretation. What it means is that grace is truth. The law is not truth. It was never God's truth. Now, it might be true about your behavior, but it's not the truth of God. And when John wrote, he didn't say, if you know what's true, it will set you free. He said, if you know the truth, it will set you free. So do we see things in our behavior that are true? Absolutely, yes, we do. But there is a truth beyond what is true about us. This is the truth beyond what is true about us. Now, the other thing I need to reiterate about that is that John chapter 1 is our new expression of creation in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay? Um, and uh, he was there in the beginning, and then the Word became flesh, and we see his glory, full of grace and truth. So, so when did grace and truth begin, is the big question. Grace and truth did not begin here, because Jesus shed his blood and rose from the dead. Grace and truth, according to John, began here. So we've got grace and truth begin here. Okay, grace and truth start here, before creation, because in the beginning was the Word. Nothing was made without Him, so way back there, all this is saturated with grace and truth. Which means that this side of the thing was always what we were supposed to live. Now, of course, what I'm trying to do for you is say, you have to put this line in place if you want to keep all this over here and live in this over here, which is what we are called to. So, let's look at one more version of this, okay? Verse uh, 17 of Galatians 3 in the New American Standard, which I don't think we have on the screen, so I'll read it to you. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So, this is a covenant confirmed before God in Christ in one version. It's a covenant previously established by God in another version. And in this version, it's the covenant previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Given, granted, 
by means of a promise, all in grace. So, Abraham becomes a central figure to understanding this. Okay, and that's the journey we're on. So, verse 29 of um, Galatians 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, this promise of a righteousness revealed, of a never-ending covenant, becomes ours because we're the rightful inheritors of it. If we are Christ, what's interesting, it doesn't say, so if you are Christ, you belong to God. If you're Christ, his father is your father. He said, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So it's evident that what happened to and in Abraham is inseparable from a full understanding of the true gospel. So, let's start breaking this down. Some of this stuff you've heard a little of, but we've got to bring it back into the conversation. The question then, was Abraham righteous? And the answer is, yes. An underwhelming yes. Second question, was Abraham sinless? The answer is no. By what means was Abraham declared righteous? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I personally like to think what that means is that he believed that God was who he said he was and he believed that he, Abraham, was who God said he was. And that's why his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. And he was declared righteous. So, do we agree then that Abraham was righteous, but he wasn't sinless? But he was righteous. Was the sacrifice the means by which he was made righteous? So we have a problem. Because we're now pointed back to Abraham to understand the gospel... But we've discovered a sacrifice was not the means by which he was made righteous. What were you told about this? That you couldn't be made righteous without this sacrifice. Okay, so we better think about it, haven't we? Was Jesus righteous? Was Jesus sinless? Yes. But was Jesus righteous because he was sinless? Okay. The answer is no. By what means was Jesus declared righteous? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His baptism was the greatest example of that moment that revolutionized the life of Jesus, okay? When they said, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. So when Jesus believed that God was who God said he was and that he was who God said he was, there was this miracle took place, okay? So, was a sacrifice the means by which Jesus was made righteous? The answer is no. He was righteous because the Father declared him to be righteous apart from him sinning or not sinning. Because if Jesus was declared righteous because he didn't sin, then Abraham couldn't be declared righteous. Because we know that Abraham sinned. So therefore, righteousness has got no connection to sinlessness or sinfulness. 
Righteousness is a completely separate thing. It is revelation of righteousness that comes by grace and truth through the gospel of faith and original blessing that is the promise of Abraham expressed in our lives. Okay, so we need to look at two things. We've covered some of these before, but we'll go through them reasonably quickly. There are two prominent blood sacrifices in the story of Abraham. The question is, did they serve to make Abraham right with God? Did these sacrifices justify him before God? And the question is, what exactly did they establish? Okay, So here's the two sacrifices. You're not unfamiliar with them. One we've talked about more than the other. The first one, of course, is Genesis 15. Then the word of the Lord came to him about the fact that he'd been promised he'd be the father of a multitude, but the only one he had to inherit his estate was the head of his servants because he was the next in line legally. But God said, this, this, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, I don't know where that's clicking. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And there's where we get the original verse that we've been talking about. Abraham or Abram as he was then, believed the Lord or believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. So just by looking up at the stars of the heavens and believing there was something greater than his current experience because God was who he said he was and he was who God said that he was, it says that he was credited to him as righteousness that day. And so we know Abraham as a righteous man, the father of faith and the man of faith who we're told to follow. So the question is, at what point was righteousness credited to him? Was this imparted on the back of a sacrifice for sin? Okay, so verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Uh, and I'm going I'm to leave out the next few verses because we're going to talk about those in a minute. So verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. What was that? Incarnation. It was an incarnation. It was the word being made flesh, not in a body, but in a blazing fire pot, a blazing torch in a smoking fire pot. But it was God who was passing through. How do we know? Because it follows by saying, this covenant that I made with you this day. Now you, couldn't, you didn't make a covenant by chucking a fire pot through the, through the channel of blood between the carcasses. You made a covenant by walking between the carcasses. Therefore we have to know this is how we saw it. But God walked between those carcasses. And it says, verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, we can't go into it in full depth, but in essence, God didn't really make a covenant with Abraham. It's a very generous terminology that is used. Because you can only make a covenant with somebody who makes a covenant with you. So the real way to explain it would be God made a covenant with himself, of which Abraham would be the beneficiary. Okay? So God promises himself that he will only ever deal with Abraham in one way. 
And therefore, if we are Christ and we are Abraham's seed, we have a promise in God through Christ also that God will only ever deal with us one way. How was he going to deal with Abraham? According to the promise. Not according to a curse, according to the promise. Or in other words, Abraham, you will always live here. In fact, you can forget all that because you will always live here, okay? Why? Because I made a promise with myself of which you will be the beneficiary, okay? This is the gospel, isn't it? In that gospel, okay? So, so that was the covenant. Now, the question is, was there any aspect of that that was payment for Abraham's sinfulness? And the answer is absolutely not, it was only to do with covenant. There's nothing there that says, Abraham, because you're a sinner, these animals must die. God says, because this covenant has to be an everlasting covenant, it has to be made through death to bring life. But it's not about your sin, Abraham. This is not payment for your sin. This is a declaration of covenant in spite of your sin because he was already declared righteous before this happened. So before this walk through the blood carcasses that God did, Abraham's already declared to be righteous, but no sacrifice. Isn't this, don't you find this fascinating? The, the second major sacrifice in, in Abraham's life is in Genesis 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Notice his name's now changed. He's got the, the name of God in the middle of his name. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So we know that Isaac by this time is a, at least a, a late teens boy, possibly early 20s. Um, and he's the, he is the physical manifestation to Abraham of the promise that he would be the father of a multitude, Okay. Now God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now listen, verse, verse 4 and verse 5 are fascinating. Even though Abraham hadn't fully grasped what was going on here, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Verse 4 says, on the third day, okay, where's our, where's our significance for that statement? Why, why would you put that in there? Why would you make such a point of the third day? Well, you'd make such a point of the third day because this is the third day experience. Okay? It's resurrection. So Abraham is already getting a revelation back here of the work of resurrection. He didn't understand it all, but he says, listen, all I know is this. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there we will worship and then we will come back to you. 
Now, he doesn't say we will sacrifice and then we'll come back to you. He says we will worship, then we'll come back to you. Now, I propose to you, it's because Abraham is living in a revelation that he hasn't yet fully grasped, but it's the revelation of creation, incarnation, and resurrection that allows him to live over here in original blessing and a revelation of righteousness, but he doesn't fully understand it, much like many people who are in this do not understand yet what it is that they are in. Part of our job is letting them know not this, but this. That's the good news of the gospel. So, question. Okay. So this is, this is the child. This is the expression of promise. This is the incarnation to Abraham. And God says, take him and kill him. We don't read a single word of complaint from Abraham. We see absolute compliance. Now... We can, we can talk about what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says about Abraham, who by faith sacrificed or took his, his son, was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, and all that's very lovely, but it's a reflective, it's a reflective recollection of an event that requires more investigation. If God said to me, take now your son, your only son Joel, and sacrifice him on the top of the minster... Um, I would immediately go into conversation with, first of all, myself and the devil, because I wouldn't believe that it was God, and great argument that this is nuts, this is crazy. Now, he said, but Abraham was a man of faith. No, that's not why he did what he did, okay? Abraham came from a completely heathen, pagan culture in which child sacrifice was the most prominent way to appease the anger of the gods. So if you believe the gods to become angry and that the gods must be appeased, to be asked for a ritual child sacrifice was nothing out of the ordinary in Abraham's culture. It was very normal because that's what the gods did. So the moral of the story was not how faithful can I see Abraham is, I'm really going to put him under pressure. The moral of the story is, I am going to show you Abraham, now that you have had a revelation of righteousness, that I am not like those other gods. I do not require ritual child sacrifice to appease my anger. Now, question, what has this become if we were to just use some different terminology? The cross has become an expression of ritual child sacrifice that has dominated the message of the gospel. God killed his son in order to give us life. Now, there are elements of that, again, we've got to look at, okay, we, this, is a, this is a big, big subject, but can you see how we could have a problem because our mind has really said, but made it really nice. You know, we've fluffed it up, fluffy pillows and soft toys and, and lovely phraseology. When really what we are saying is God needed a ritual child sacrifice to appease his anger. And that has been at the root of the gospel for over 500 years. God needed a ritual child sacrifice to appease his anger. The lesson of Abraham, who we know is our expression of this, was, Abraham, I don't need you to ritually sacrifice your son because I'm not angry. Okay? Now we're going to look even further into that in just a few moments. Okay? So, we also know 
about the two bloodsheddings of the expanded creation story. You know, the one we're most familiar with was, of course, I'm going to run very quickly through this because we've talked at length about it. Adam and Eve, uh, naked, felt no shame. And um, then comes what we, we know as the fall. Okay, we're here. Um, and uh, then there's the felt shame that they have and their attempts at a solution, which is the fig leaves and hiding in the bushes. And, uh, of course, the fact that Genesis 3 verse 7 says the eyes of both of them were opened uh, and they realized they were naked. Uh, Then uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord called, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And the first mention of fear, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11, and he, God said, who told you that you were naked? In other words, God did not tell them that they were naked. So their sense of shame was not coming in any way from something implied or spoken by God. Who told you that you were naked? They'd always been naked. God had never seen them anything but naked. To try and cover that nakedness with all the foolish, stupid things that we try and do was a ridiculous, a ridiculous process from the off because God always knew and saw that they were naked. You can't hide yourself from the eyes of God. So who told you you were naked, okay? So who was it that was causing the problem, God or them? Now, there was a problem in that they had chosen to define their own righteousness but we have to put that in its proper context in the, in, in the issue of God. Because this then becomes more a test of what God is like than what man is like. Okay? What we've focused on is what man is like. What this pushes us to focus on is what God is like. God said, I never told you you were naked. And so, of course, what happens is <coughs> we know that God provides garments of skins. And um, the question then is, if... If God was never ashamed of their nakedness, but he provided garments of skins, were the skins provided for God's benefit or for their benefit? Did anything need to be fixed in the eyes of God, or did there only need to be something fixed in the eyes of humanity? Was it changing how God felt about them, or was it done to change how they felt about themselves? because God had not seen them any differently. So by implication, an animal, it seems, would have died, and therefore the skin's taken, and the skin, so that's where we're all told, well, there you are in the garden because of man's sin. You know, there had to be a sacrifice for their sin. No, the sacrifice that was made was for their benefit, not for God's benefit. And then, of course, the issue is that's not the only blood sacrifice in this beginning process because we also have talked about the fact that before that God sees that Adam is alone and says it's not good that he's alone so I'll make a helper for him so God puts him into a deep sleep just like Abraham and out of Adam's side it says God removed a rib and and, and sewed up the place made up the place of the flesh that was torn in other words Adam bled so that the rib could be removed to create 
Eve who was the answer or the solution to the need that he had. Now, parallel, you have to ask the question, why was it with Jesus on the cross that no bones were broken and the centurion chose to put his spear up into the side of Jesus? Because again, we are repeating this model that from the side of Jesus, a spiritual rib is taken and from it, the spiritual bride, not the Eve of Adam, but the church for Christ was created in the same way. So the point is this, the first reference to that blood was not to fix anything, it was to create something. So what have we got? Creation before reparation. What we've done is made it the other way. We have to fix something. God said, no, we don't have to fix something, we have to create something. So he creates first, And the blood that was shed was to create something. I propose to you that the first and foremost reason for the blood of Jesus on the cross was to create the means by which we could prosper as his body and that that blood was the blood of covenant and not the blood of cleansing. Although there is cleansing in the blood, which again is something we'll talk about in a little while. So, none of this, I hope you see, was to alleviate God's feelings. Okay? None of it was to pay for Abraham's sin. So here's the big question running parallel to all this. What was really happening at the cross? Did it change how God sees us? Was this aspect of the picture of a dying lamb designed to change how God sees me or how I see myself? Did it give God the reason to not be ashamed of me Or was it a pure work of grace to provide me the means to no longer be ashamed of myself? So is what's happening here actually God graciously changing how we think about ourselves but not necessary for how he thinks about us? Okay, let's take this a little further. The implications obviously are huge. About sin, salvation, the reach of the cross and grace and the main purpose of the cross. So so when we we get through then from that, um, what is the true work of the cross? Is it to fix God or to facilitate the restoration of all things? In it, was God able to kill Adam without destroying the human race. Was that the wisdom of God, that that because in Adam all die, if we can deal with Adam's race, because Christ became a son of Adam, then without destroying the race, we can kill off of the problem. These are all things we're going to look at as we take this through. I love this statement by a guy called George MacDonald. Good souls will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God Such must take courage to forsake the false in any shape, to deny their old selves in the most seemingly sacred of prejudices and follow Jesus as he is presented by himself, his apostles, and the spirit of truth. So we're trying to take away the issue of being horrified of things that we have now come to believe about God. So, was it access to a covenant because of cleansing or was it cleansing because of access to a covenant? It's very important, I'm going to say that again. Was this here, was it access to a covenant because of cleansing? Because that's what I was taught. If you're cleansed from your sin, you have access to the covenant. Or was it cleansing because of access to the covenant? Was he saying, because you're in, you have cleansing through the covenant? 
Okay, so where's the cross fit in all of this? Here's where it gets even more interesting. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Right? This, is, this is Christ. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me. What does that mean? This is incarnation. Okay? With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So God was not into sacrifice and offerings. It was not what made him tick. It was not what he was about. With sacrifice, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So he's going to do the will of God in the flesh, incarnate. First he said, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Although the law required them to be made, so it was all to do with this. Okay. But then I said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does this sacrifice do? It makes us holy once for all. Okay? Why? Because he came to do away with the first to establish the second. Okay? He came to draw the line in that creation, incarnation, resurrection to establish the second. Now listen to this, okay? As we wrestle with scriptures like, you know, he was made to be sin for us, which some of you are familiar with, and as we walk in the light, he is in the light, we have fellowship, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. These are all things we need to deal with, but we must look at them through the trajectory of the whole story, not just isolated statements collected and glued together. We must measure them through the lens of the overarching story of the Bible, not imposed ideals. So it's evident what happened to and in Abraham is inseparable from a full understanding of the true gospel, as we saw in our earlier readings, particularly from Galatian. And we looked at the two prominent sacrifices, the one where God makes covenant and the one where he is asked to sacrifice Isaac. Now the question is, did they serve to make Ab Abraham right with God? And the answer is no. Did they justify him before God? The answer is no. So the question is, what did they establish? Well, the bits that we missed out provide an interesting connection to the trajectory of the gospel. And we're just going to deal with these quickly tonight, okay? Genesis 15, verse 12 through 16. So remember we read the one about take the carcasses and divide them and the lamp went through and this is the bit I missed out now when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and behold terror and great darkness fell upon him and God said to Abraham now bear in mind God could say anything here I mean this this is Abraham has been put to sleep by God just just like you know when Jesus was in this sleep on the cross God can say anything, but he chooses something very specific to say. He says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. What do we call that afterwards when they came out? 
we call it, I'm going to have to make some space in here, we call it, I'll do it in red, we call it the exodus, right? Familiar with that? So what was the thing that God chose when he had Abraham in a deep sleep to tell him? He said, you're going to understand all this through something that's going to happen in 400 years time. And it's going to be called the Exodus. Not to Abraham, but we know it as the Exodus. Your people will, will be in, in slavery and they'll serve, but they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace, buried in old age in the fourth generation. will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite, not yet complete. So Abraham is inseparably connected to the Exodus of Israel. Now, what was the primary thing that we remember from the exodus of Israel. This is what we remember. Passover. Okay? The event of Passover was the key expression of the exodus, which was coming out of slavery in Egypt into life and into the place of promise, the Passover. Okay? Now, what you need to know is Exodus to the Jewish mind is more than the name of a book. It's an event through which just about everything related to their identity is viewed. It's interesting, therefore, that its importance within the grand scheme of things should be revealed several hundred years before it was to happen. I guess it must have been important. I guess if the one thing God wanted to say to Abraham was, listen, your people are going into captivity, but they're going to come out. That's what I want you to focus on. It occurs in what I believe to be the most important model of covenant prior to Christ and the cross. So it has a huge bearing on our understanding of the cross and the objectives contained within the new covenant. Okay, Because here's the interesting thing. The Jewish people celebrate Passover in what they call the Cedar Meal, at the Feast of Passover. And to them, the Exodus is not some ancient event, however important. It's the confession of an ever-recurring redemption. So even they see that redemption has to be understood in the context of Passover. Now, this is what's also interesting, okay? There is an ancient tale from Mesopotamia, and bear in mind a lot of the stories in the Bible are not only contained in the Bible. There are versions of them in other writings which we have to be aware of. And one of them is the Arcadian tale from Mesopotamia. And it's typical of the many creation accounts at the time because in those creation accounts, humans were created as slaves for the gods. But in contrast to the Akkadian tales, rather than creating slaves, God delivers the people from slavery. So, we have here, very interesting, on this side, this follows the model of Arcadian gods common to most of the stories at that time. Men were slaves to the gods. This side is completely different because we have a God who frees from slavery. It is uncommon to any of the stories at the time. In fact, this is the only model where the people are not slaves to the gods, but where the God frees the people 
from slavery. So God is telling Abraham, I'm going to give you an expression of what I'm really like. I'm going to show you that I set slaves free. I don't bring people into slavery. Do you see now why Jesus said, who the sun sets free is free indeed. That the truth will make you free. That freedom becomes such a message. So Abraham, oh, this is interesting. The term out of Egypt appears 142 times in the Bible, which is fascinating. 142 times the term out of Egypt appears. Therefore, we can figure that something here in the explanation is about becoming coming out of slavery and it's connected to Exodus and therefore connected to Passover. Okay, so just stay with me. So, let's, let's come to this thing in Egypt. Okay, so the children of Israel are in captivity. God says he's going to deliver them from Egypt and the firstborn of all in Egypt are going to die. So God says to Abraham, tell the people to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb and to put the blood from that lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of the house and when I see the blood... I will pass over you. So we now translate that through this model to say, yeah, because the lamb was dying in order to save them from sin. Where does it say anywhere in the Passover model that the lamb was being sacrificed to appease God for the sins of the people of Israel? It doesn't, does it? So how come... We've now reinterpreted that to say when Christ, the Passover lamb, comes, his sacrifice is to appease God for the sins of the people. Do you see how it doesn't tie together? But when was Christ crucified? At the feast of Passover. Why? Because he is our Passover lamb. As our Passover lamb then, we can't impose upon him something that was not here in the Passover. Therefore, the Passover was a deliverance from slavery, but was not a payment for the sins of the people of Israel. Would you agree? So we have to think about this, don't we? So it's fascinating then that the crucifixion took place at the Passover. Now, there was another feast in the Jewish uh, year which was part of the old law, which was called the Feast of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur, is the, is the Jewish feast festival. Question. If Christ was all about atoning, because the Feast of Atonement was all about the priest entering the Holy of Holies with the blood of an animal, in order that for one year and one year alone, God would overlook the sins of the people, because that was to do with the law. But remember that the promise was what happened 430 years later, which is Moses and the law, could not annul or add to the promise that was made before. So we can't now connect that to the righteousness given to Abraham. We can't now connect that to the feasts that were under the law that only existed because of the law because the law was showing us how sinful we were therefore we needed some way to appease the anger of God unless that was not the way it was supposed to be done. Now remember when Jesus came to do his will what did he say? 
with sacrifices and burnt offerings, not you were pleased because they did a jolly good job, because they would then have to say that about himself. He said, with sacrifice and burnt offerings, you were not pleased. You didn't desire them. Therefore, I propose to you, the cross was not about sacrifice and burnt offering in the model that we think it was from our penal substitutionary atonement theories, but actually we have to look back here to see what it was as the deliverance from slavery and what that was accomplishing. So, my point is this. If atonement, i.e. a blood sacrifice to appease the anger of God so that we could have our sins overlooked, was the most important thing. Why didn't Jesus die at the Feast of Atonement? Why did he die at the Feast of Passover? Because what happened at Passover is the key model. Now, I appreciate we're not going to get through all of this tonight, but let's look at the other Abraham sacrifice. Remember the one of his son. Listen to this. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes to Genesis 22, verse 4, saw the place from a distance, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the lad will go over there, we'll worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, my father, he said, here I am, my son, Abraham said. And he said, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? So Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God. And since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me... Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, as it said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will provide him. Now, I believe from that, for most of my life, that Abraham's asking, uh, that his son's asking, where's the lamb? And Abraham says God will provide a lamb and then the ram caught by the horns in its thicket was the provision of God to show that now here was a sacrifice that would be made in order to appease the issue so that he could take his son free. Here's the problem. When you read it in the Hebrew, the words for lamb and ram are two completely different words. So in verse 7 he says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? The Hebrew words say... S-E-H, say. Abraham said God will provide for himself or will provide himself the lamb, say, for the burnt offering. And then we have this business of the ram caught in the thicket. That's a different word. It's the Hebrew word ale. So he saw an ale, not a say, an ale caught in the thicket. And he took the ale, not the say, and sacrificed the ale. Now... You say, why is that so important? Well, it's fascinating that of the sheep and goat families, the ram, remember what was going to get sacrificed here, was not a say, a lamb, but an ale, a ram. The ram had special recognition with the ancient Egyptians, which is where they're going to be in 400 years' time. 
And this animal was associated with the gods Banebjedet and Chnum. And the attributes, it had the attributes of fertility, strength, and birth, which you could argue are the attributes of creation, incarnation, and resurrection, attributed to a false god. What was sacrificed that day was not the lamb on behalf of Isaac so he could be delivered. What was sacrificed was a representation of the gods of Egypt and the powers of Egypt were being killed that day. The ram, not the lamb. The ahel, not the say. Why was that? Because the say was not going to be sacrificed when he says God will provide a lamb. wasn't going to happen until 400 years later. Abraham wasn't saying God's, oh look, God's provided the lamb, the ram. No, that was the destruction of the God mentality of Egypt. It was the end of this idea of ritual child sacrifice. And he said, somewhere up there, not now, because this doesn't have to be done to free you. Somewhere up there, there's going to be a lamb that God will provide for himself. It comes here and it comes here. And it is not as a payment for anything. It's as the deliverance from something. So as sure as the Passover in Egypt, the destroyer was death. Their status was that of slave. And their condition was bondage. That is what is going to be broken. So we've got two minutes just to, to say one more thing about this. And then we'll have another crack at this at some other juncture. So let me take you now to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that's Christ, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil or the slanderer or the accuser or the adversary, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery, this is the slavery again, all their lives, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to make, be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make, there's a Latin word here, propitiation, which we'll talk about next time, for the sins of the people. So the question is, was the objective to defeat sin... Or was the objective to defeat death? In Egypt with the Passover, were we defeating sin? Or were we defeating death? Therefore, when we come to the Passover here, were we defeating sin? Or were we defeating death? Was the primary motivation of the cross sin? Or was the primary motivation of the cross death? I propose to you that what happened after the cross gives you the answer to that question. On the third day, he rose again because death couldn't hold him, the grave couldn't keep him. What was destroyed in the cross was death. The objective was to free us from death, to free us from death. Why? Because death entered the world through sin. Sin wasn't the problem. Sin caused the death. Jesus dealt with the death. We were not condemned for our sin. We were pitted for the state of death that we were in. And so arbitrarily God says, I will deal with death so you, you can come back to a revelation of righteousness in original blessing to have faith in this gospel that frees you from slavery that's driven by grace and truth. So let me give you one more verse on that. Here's the one verse. 
1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the issue is, this is how far we're going to go today and we'll pick it up, that this was about the end of death as the dominating force in humanity. All may live for Christ has died. Death is defeated. And because death is defeated, sin is conquered. Because sin was the sting of death. But death was the issue. So here we are freed from death. Here we are freed from death. Why are we free from death? Because he's trying to bring us back over here to the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life for all men. This is not some restrictive, exclusive place that one or two live. This is the inclusive gospel that draws all men, all women, all boys, all girls of all races, of all times into this gospel, back to the tree of life, not by our own efforts accomplished through works and the law under slavery to a religious system, worried by religious sin, trying to figure out what's right and wrong, but now delivered by grace and truth into a gospel that is of faith that brings us to original blessing, free from our slavery, and living in a revelation of righteousness. Our message is a revelation of righteousness to the world. It's not fix this and you can have that. It's you don't have to fix this because of that. And we want you to live in that revelation that draws this line because there is creation, incarnation, and resurrection have become the key issues. The cross is part of it, but we're going to talk some more about some of the detail of this and how far that works next time. So we've said enough. I, don't, I, I, I have lots to say. I'm passionate about this, but... Awesome. Now let me say this. Although this is, is shrouded with mystery, this makes more sense to me than anything I've ever heard all my life. And I, I have, as I've told you before, I, I reached 60 in March. I've been in church, therefore, for 60 years. Um, I've been part of this church in its various forms for 54 years this summer. I have been in, in, in leadership, in full-time ministry in this church for for uh, 30, nearly 34 years, I will have been senior leader in this church in, on July 4th for 25 years. And this makes more sense than anything I have ever been proposed in all of that time. Okay, Because I believe this is the true gospel. Now thank God, living here, grace and truth has this wonderful way of throwing its blanket over all our stuff here. But that's not where we want to live. We want to get this line in place because of the, creation, the work of creation beginnings, because of incarnation, the word made flesh in us now and living among us and the resurrection life from the dead. We can have a line that keeps us living over here. And this is our gospel. This is what we're preaching. This is what we're pushing at. This is what we're shaping the church towards and in. And we're not going back. Okay. So, I bless you. Thank you for being patient listening to me and uh, we'll rumble some more 
a little bit. We've probably got one more session um, to deal with some of the technicalities and questions because the Bible seems to say some things that contradict that. But we'll deal with those things next time because actually they don't. They're, they're a, an expression of it. So bless you, love you, and we'll see you on Saturday, I guess. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.